Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of, per- uh, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and somebody who's um, alarmed and still hopeful about our climate crisis. And um, we have an awesome show today. So we're going to be talking um, with uh, the author of Finding Turtle Farm, and she's sharing the story of how she started one of the few- first um, CSAs in the area, and she has a new book out, Angela. So that will be our second half of the show. But right now with us is Ben Lillieston and he is the Director of Rural Strategies and Climate Change at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Oh, hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back. And so um, so uh, finally, we got some climate change legislation that's been recently passed. Um, it's called the Inflation Re- Reduction Act, or IRA. So tell us about IETPs. What, what do you guys think of this uh, package? Well, I think we're um, overall, we think it's a good step. Um, it, when you have a bill this large, you're going to have a mix of good things and, and there are some bad things in there as well. But, you know, the main thing it does on agriculture is it greatly expands our conservation programs. And these are programs that are way oversubscribed. By that, I mean like far, more farmers want to get access to those programs than there's money available. So this was really necessary, and these programs help support farmers who want to do conservation. So a lot of it is focused on soil health, maybe putting in perennial crops or well-managed grazing systems or diversifying what you're growing, so growing different types of crops, putting in buffers around waterways. So it's a, it's a lot of really good stuff. Um, so it expanded that, and, and that was badly needed. Um, and then there are, uh, you know, deep investments in renewable energy, including in rural electric co-ops, which is really important. Um, and uh, so, you know, for electric cars, there's, you know, benefits for the consumer, but also manufacturing. Uh, and that could have implications for our agriculture system, of course, because a big part of our landscape in Minnesota is corn, and a lot of that, at least a portion, about a third of that is going into corn ethanol. So how that electric car market starts to um, step into the corn ethanol market will be interesting, but this um, the bill also does support biofuel uh, infrastructure. So it's got like a, a mixture of everything, but um, I think overall we would say this is a significant step forward, and frankly, just getting Congress to take a step on climate change is kind of a uh, a semi-victory in and of itself. Right. And right now, the United States has fallen behind its commitment to reduce emissions. So the goal is to reduce emissions by 50 percent by 2030. But we're only on track um, to do that uh, by um, by only 26 percent. So <laughs> we don't have much more time to catch up. No, no, we absolutely have needed this. We needed this bill five years ago. Um, but yeah, this is going to, most of the projections are that this will move us towards 40% by 2030. So we need to find that extra 10%. Um, and we need a lot of state action um, to probably to get us there. And the bill does have some flaws. So let's let's just talk about some of those lo- flaws. Like I've been hearing about these um, capture, carbon capture projects. So can you tell me, explain what that means? Yeah, that's a real concern. So 
Um, carbon capture is uh, basically through manufacturing, um, but also through oil extraction where they capture the carbon so it doesn't get released into the atmosphere. Um, but part of the problem, well, what this bill does is there are already some tax breaks and benefits for uh, companies who are doing that, and this extends those um, for a longer period of time um, and just makes more types of operations eligible for those. Um, I think the concern in Minnesota and a lot of Midwest states is um, there's a lot of investors who want to put pipelines into uh, many rural areas, uh, particularly in western Minnesota, but Iowa, the Dakotas, Illinois, um, around carbon capture, which would basically allow different facilities. And right now they're talking about ethanol facilities, but it wouldn't, doesn't just have to be ethanol. It could be fertilizer plants or other plants. Um, capturing that, that CO2, putting it in a pipeline and sending it to a facility that would then inject it underground and keep it underground. And there's a lot of questions about this technology. Really, does it, it right now, it, it hasn't successfully worked um, really well. Um, how long can you keep that CO2 really in the, in, underground? And from our perspective, it's really just sort of reinforcing the existing system uh, rather than making some of the changes that we need to do. And the fossil fuel industry also uses CO2 in extraction of natural gas in particular. So it's um, it's really, in a way, kind of propping up that system based on a technological promise that doesn't currently exist. So we're concerned about that kind of tax break. So um, 200 years ago, um, the prairies were capturing a lot of carbon um, naturally. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of how it can, – can you explain how the prairies naturally um, capture carbon? Yeah, you know, it's part of the photosynthesis process, and and prairies are, first of all, you know, perennial, so they're deep-rooted, and um, so it it allows them to pull, you know, CO2 out of the air as part of what they're, as part of the photosynthesis process, and are growing, and they're growing deep-rooted systems, um, and that, that is entering into the soil, building soil health. Soil health is about a lot of micronutrients, not just pulling carbon. Um, but that is that is uh, one of the real advantages of perennial crops. So when we talk about like a pasture-based system, that's a perennial-based system. But that's why a lot of people are really interested in Kernza, which is a perennial wheat. Um, and there are other looking at other types of perennial crops that are uh, don't require tillage as much tillage at any rate and and if not no tillage um and that can really pull that co2 out of the air and into the ground so current, i will say though just yeah. quickly though there's a lot of scientific uncertainty about exactly how much you can pull and for how long it stays in there you know so we know it does it we know it's a good thing um but the precision of measurement is still very, very questionable. Well, and that's, I mean, these things get so complex. And so, um, and, um, uh, but life is complex. And part of, I think, mm-hmm. a way that it'd be good for our culture to move is is ways of finding ways to embrace complexity. And so understanding um, these 
complex issues. Now, so tell us again about like the carbon capture, the putting the pipes in the line in the ground. I mean, the carbon capture sounds fantastic to me. You know, yay! I really want a solution. I mean, yay! Yes, any solution. Let's go for it. But to take that pause and it's like, well, does that really? Is that really the most effective strategy to do right now? And it doesn't. So why is it not the most effective strategy? Because it kind of sounds kind of cool. <laughs> well, I think the most effective strategy would be to dramatically reduce fossil fuel emissions and accelerate this transition away from that. And that, and that is that's kind of the concern about the carbon capture technology is it's sort of allowing fossil fuel uh, production to continue. It's a it's a it's a sort of a subsidy and a way to allow them to keep going and doing business as they are instead of, you know, this is the, one of the criticisms of the Inflation Reduction Act is it's all carrot and no stick, meaning it's a lot of subsidies for a lot of different industries, um, but it doesn't really regulate emissions. And um, that's the tough step that we need to get to on climate policy is we need to really say, you can't emit this amount and we're going to start hammering on you over time to reduce those emissions. And that's I, that's the most immediate step, but it's also the toughest politically, um, for sure, in this, you know, where we are right now. Yeah, and so um, so there's an article on, you know, I should back up and let our audience know a little bit about your personal background and IATP because you guys have a lot of great, um, I'll be referring to some articles and people can read them directly. So tell us a little bit about IATP. Yeah, well, IATP has been around uh, for 30 years based in Minneapolis, uh, but we also have offices in uh, Washington and Berlin, Germany. Uh, and we were really set up during the 80s farm crisis to look at how na- national, international policy are impact- impacting farmers on the ground, including in the Midwest, but also in different parts of the world. And um, so we have, have probably the last decade or maybe even a little more have really looked at the intersection of climate policy and agriculture policy and, uh, and, and trade policy and how those things uh, interconnect. Um, so I've been really focused um, on on that intersection around climate change, climate policy, and how it impacts farmers and the agriculture economy. And so one of the articles um, you have in the website that you've done recently is the complex relationship of food, agriculture, and climate change. And so let's just do some basic uh, 101 education here. So there's three yeah. main sources of uh, global um, of GH uh, of global climate permission uh, in the food systems. So explain what those three are. Yeah, well, um, probably the biggest is nitrous oxide, and and we hear a lot about carbon, but in agriculture, uh, the biggest source of emissions are nitrogen fertilizers in the U.S., Um, and that's that's because they require natural gas in their production, and then there are emissions when they are over-applied on the land, and then when they intersect with water, they run off the land. Um, yeah, so we're going to take a break, Ben, and we come back. We're going to talk more about this because nitrous, nitrous oxide is the most potent greenhouse gas, 273 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're talking with IATP. Oh, we are 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're talking today with Ben Lilliston. With the, uh, he's the Director of Rural Strategies and Climate Change at the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. And before we went on break, Ben, we were talking about um, the complex relationship of food, agriculture, and climate change and how the food system produces greenhouse gases. And estimates are anywhere from one-fourth to one-third of global um, greenhouse gases are from our food system. And you were talking about nitric oxide. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, that's linked to uh, fertilizer use and particularly nitrogen fertilizer use. And that's uh, a heavy requirement for corn production. So as we've seen corn acres expand in the United States, but also in Minnesota um, over the last several decades, you see a rise in this nitrogen fertilizer use and a rise in greenhouse gases around that. Nitrous oxide is one of the most potent greenhouse gases, um, So it and it also stays in the atmosphere for a long time. One of the things I, I was hearing from somewhere else is that, hey, we really want to work on positive externalities. Um, and in economics, there's something called negative externalities. So corn is something that produces this gas, plus it creates nitrates, which hurts our water. So, um, so how, so some of those, uh, and, and get back to this complex relationship between food, agriculture, and climate change, those three greenhouse gases are nitrous oxide, methane, and carbon dioxide. So talk a little bit about methane. Yeah, so methane uh, is a short-lived greenhouse gas, so it only stays in the atmosphere between 10 and 12 years, but it is also quite potent. Uh, it's about 80 times the potency of carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. And uh, we're seeing a rise in methane emissions in the U.S. in the agriculture sector, and that is around uh, animal uh, production and particularly these large-scale confined concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs. We might, some people call them factory farms. Um, we have a lot of animals together in one space. You may have a 1,000 or more than a 1,000 animals in that space, and they produce large amounts of manure, and, and that's stored in a manure lagoon and then often applied and often over-applied to farmland in that general area. So you get methane emissions in, in the case of a dairy, a large dairy. You get methane emissions from the cow, and then you get methane emissions from the storage of that manure, and then you get methane emissions and nitrous oxide emissions from the over-application of that manure on the farmland and as it runs off. And we also have water, you know, pollutions related to that. Um, so that's a real um, concern, one of the many reasons that people are concerned about these large factory farms. Um, and yeah. then carbon dioxide is probably the least um, of the greenhouse gases in agriculture, and that has to do with a lot of the equipment and transportation. Yeah, it's those those negative externalities um, hurting the water and the soil, and, and and so how to how to make that shift. One of the things I saw in this report that I found very alarming is that the climate change itself is diminishing the land's existing capacity to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. So again, before um, industrial agriculture, the, that we had that deep. Um, or before colonization, we had that deep living soil that was absorbing lots of carbon. Um, and now mm-hmm. um, the land's existing capacity to absorb ca- carbon from the atmosphere is being diminished. Well, climate change itself 
is is affecting it's already affecting everything so for example last year in Minnesota we had a pretty severe drought there's a big drought of course in the, in the west and in particular the southwest and then also in Europe and China is also experiencing real drought the drought affects our your ability to sequester carbon uh a uh flooding extreme weather event around flooding can, across your land can can affect your ability to sequester carbon wildfires as they've seen out west or hurricanes that they've seen in the sort of eastern part of the and southern part of the United States all these things disrupt uh attempts to kind of sequester carbon in soil um and the other thing is just the rise in heat um where there's you know more research around as as heat rises, it makes it more challenging to sequester carbon at the rates that we have in the past. Um, so it doesn't mean we can't do it and shouldn't try to do it, but um, climate change is disrupting sort of the normal order of things. Yeah, and so one of the things that's so vital is to be able to distinguish true from false solutions, and you guys have several articles on that. So I want to go over the five false ex- solutions um, mm-hmm. that are now being talked about. So factory farming, gas, biogas. So talk a bit about that. You know, this is an effort to um, basically capture the methane from the giant manure lagoons on big dairies or big hog operations. And um, the problem there is that uh, you start to create uh, financial incentives to produce more manure. And that's not what we want, more waste. Um, and because you, at the end of the day, even if you are able to capture some of that methane, you still have the waste. So you still have the water pollution challenges. You still have other air pollutants that come from that waste. And you're also creating incentives to increase the herd size of your operation to produce more waste. And so that produces other additional uh, greenhouse gases. So we feel like that's a, 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 an example of a false solution around climate when we really need to be raising animals in a different type of system uh, where they're on the land, and we probably need fewer animals as well. So you're calling for the California state government and the EPA to stop categorizing factory farm gas as renewable so it's not eligible for those uh, limited uh, renewable fuel subsidies. That's right. Yeah, right. renewable fuel subsidies, and in the IRA, there's there's a tax credits that are also going to those types of uh, operations. And so the second one is the soil carbon offsets credits. So talk a bit about that. Well, yeah, this has been around for um, more than a decade, and the idea is that a polluter somewhere can buy a credit from a farmer based on how much carbon they've sequestered. And the polluter won't have to reduce their actual emissions. Um, The farmer's taking care of it because they're sequestering carbon out of the air. They've been trying to make this work for a long time. Um, It doesn't work for a number of reasons. One, the science isn't really there to show exactly how much carbon has been sequestered, that it stays there for, you know, it really needs to stay in the ground for a long period of time, um, that it may shift over time. And as we talked before about how climate change is really impacting our ability to sequester carbon. And it also lets polluters off the hook from reducing their own emissions. Um, So we feel like that's a false solution. We need to support farmers. doing practices to sequester carbon, but it shouldn't be connected to a polluter and their responsibility to reduce emissions. And so, and then uh, another one of the um, 
solutions are no-till agriculture? Well, this is one of the proposals that sort of, um, by not tilling, there is a potential to uh, increase soil carbon. Um, but one of the downsides of that is that we see a lot of no-till related to genetically engineered crops, which require the heavy heavy pesticide use because you have to sort of manage your pests, both um, both weeds and pests um, that may infect your crops. So um, we've seen an increase, while well, you see an increase in no-till, particularly in com- uh, commodity crops, corn and soy and others, um, you see a rise in, in pesticide use. So we want to be thinking about solutions that don't have negative downsides, that aren't hurting another part of, you know, the ecosystem, uh, and that are actually um, helping all parts of the ecosystem and also helping the planet. Um, and then another one is precision agriculture and big data. We're going to have more precise agriculture. We're going to have this big data, and that's going to solve our climate crisis. Do you? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say this is uh, connected to a lot of um, powerful multinationals are are getting data from farmers and trying to um, work with it even within their tractors and their equipment to say apply this amount of fertilizer here, this amount of fertilizer there, um, use these seeds here. We're analyzing your soil. We're analyzing the weather. We're putting it all together for you. Um, but what we haven't really seen, and this has been around for a while as well, and it's been uh, escalating, we haven't really seen a decline in fertilizer use in the U.S., and it hasn't been connected. Um, so while the companies are gathering a lot of information from each individual farmer, and they now have a lot of privately held information about and that's, what that's is one grown. of the keys because I know there's some and, and and with all of these solutions again we have to brace com- complexity because of course I mean no till is fantastic in a lot of areas and precision agriculture yeah. is something that's vital and also needed so you know it's not a it's not an either or but it's really understanding and I think having some law returns or something and one of those benchmark is who owns the data. I mean, if the farmer owns the data <laughs> or does somebody else own the data for some other reasons or those touch points. But um, And then last, I just and if people want to hear or read the entire article, they can go to your website. But let's talk a little bit about biofuels. Yeah, well, you know, biofuels has uh, been around for a while. Uh, I think part of the promise originally was that um, one, it would get us off of fossil fuels, and two, it would give an opportunity for farmer ownership in the system, um, and three, that we would transition to other crops outside of just corn. But none of that has really played out. Um, we It is still primarily a corn-dominated ethanol system, um, and there's been some recent research at the University of Minnesota and, and a couple other Midwest universities showing that the greenhouse gas footprint of corn ethanol actually exceeds oil. Um, and part of the reason that they that it does that is that it requires heavy fertilizer use, as we talked about for corn. Um, but it also has expanded corn acres onto land that wasn't actually in production. So what, getting back to your prairie discussion before is when you start to plow up prairie to grow more corn, um, then you're taking away the ability to sequester and you're um, disrupting that cycle. So, um, you know, we feel like a transition, including this uh, emergence of electric vehicles, we need to be really thinking about how do we 
transition out of this corn ethanol based farm economy. And this is this is going to be hard, and it needs to be done deliberately um, because there's a lot of infrastructure there, and there's a lot of parts of Minnesota and rural Minnesota that are really invested in that corn ethanol industry. So um, I may extend the segment a little bit, uh, Patrick, because there's so much more I want to say. Is And I went um, to a farm down in Northfield um, this week. A land stewardship project was doing a presentation yeah. on the farms on the on uh, the farm bill, and um, got to talk a little bit with Reggie from Regenerative Poultry down there. And they're doing some mm-hmm. wonderful, real work on land and and treating and 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 restoring that deep carbon in ways that. Um, and so what they do is they have the hazelnuts, the elderberries, and the chicken. Um, um, mm-hmm. all in one area, so they have multiple income streams. But also what they're hoping to do is to break up um, some of the tealing that occurred um, on the land here, um, and that will help with carbon. So talk a little bit about the how the land has been tilled, and, and so, you know, even keeping uh, – so some of this carbon capture approach to put new pipes down to cap, cap, capture carbon – could be continuing with sort of an industrial approach to the land rather than a living approach. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons we need to use so much fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer, um, is because we've pulled so much of the natural nutrients out of the land and the soil is somewhat depleted. I mean, this is a crisis um, – in the Midwest, but also around the world. So when you have to, you have to add more external inputs into, into the soil to make sure it's fertile. And a regenerative system that you're talking about, um, that is really focused on soil health and that is integrating animals into a, into a, and plants into a system is putting that, those nutrients into the soil and keeping them there. And it doesn't require, uh, as much, if, if any, synthetic fertilizer. I don't think that that project down there requires any outside fertilizer. No. And when um, they need to really work on the soil, they need to be bringing in, they're bringing in wood chips to try to restore the soil so the soil is able to do what it did hundreds of years ago, what it's naturally meant to do. Um, so, Ben, I know I could talk a lot longer for you, but um, and so, again, give us your website if people want more information. Yeah, IATP. And they can read um, all your wonderful articles. So I thank you so much for your time and um, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and right now we're joining by um, Angela Tedesco, and she has a new book out, a book out this uh, month, actually, Finding Turtle Farm, about a woman um, who, um, who who created a 20-acre adventure on a, one of the first community-supported agricultures um, in, our, in our area. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. So um, tell us a little bit about your background. Oh, my background. I grew up on a small farm in Oklahoma, um, so that's where I learned what good food tastes like because we always had a big family garden with five siblings and parents, and 
my father was a, a farmer for a while until he couldn't afford to feed his five children doing that. Um, so I grew up helping. Isn't that sad? I mean, I mean, it's just, it, and, and I think there's so much um, anger out there. But I mean, a lot of that anger in rural areas is quite justified. I mean, who work? I mean, farmers work incredibly hard. They do one of the most vital work. And, you know, they can't make a living at it is is just crazy. It is. It's it's sad and it's a an example of people aren't valuing where their food comes from, in my opinion, or how their soil is treated and so forth. But with that background and always having a backyard garden, I decided I wanted to do something else with plants after working in a chemistry laboratory and being a religious educator at a church, so I went back and got my master's in horticulture at Iowa State University and then decided I wanted to have an organic uh, farm, and then I learned about Community Supported Agriculture, or CSA, and that fit my value system and uh, was a cooperative uh, model, which I enjoyed very much. And uh, one nice thing about a CSA is you decide how much you're going to charge your customers. So hopefully you can make a, a living wage or decent wage doing that. Yeah. it's it, And so this was um, in 1995 um, that you started Turtle Farm. So tell us about the land and um, how you got to start a one of the first CSAs or an early CSA. Well, interestingly enough, I learned about CSAs from states like Minnesota and Wisconsin where we would run off to <laughs> when I was in graduate school, we'd run off and go visit farms up there that had started this interesting idea that we'd learned about at conferences about CSAs and and how they were functioning, how they got here to the Midwest from the East Coast and originally from actually Japan, uh, where the customers went to the farmer directly and said, if you'll grow the food the way we want, we'll buy directly from you and you only. So that's how it all got started. So like I said, we had to travel to Minnesota and Wisconsin to find people who were doing this first in the Midwest. And there were groups of us who were interested in, in growing food here in Iowa, growing local food to serve our communities. And so CSA sounded like a great win-win situation for the consumer and the farmer. And so you have a book, and it, it's, a, it, it, it's a nice read. It's a nice summer read. It feels good reading it. <laughs> Oh, good. Yeah, and I think I mean it's sort of like it's it's sort of like a trip to the farm where you can still stay on your couch. <laughs> so, um, so let's do that. This third chapter um, is, which is only page thirty six, is food as sacred. So it's it's mm-hmm. a different relationship with food. It is. Um, as an organic farmer, I chose that that method of growing so as not to put harmful chemicals that I wouldn't want on my food and wouldn't want to feed to other people. So that, you know, starts the recognition that there's a better way to, to grow our food, to treat the land. And this connection that you build with that land as you're farming it, or as my customers would come out and visit the farm even, and as we would grow the food and harvest the food, it was just a, a renewed reverence and connection with this food that felt very sacred. And, you know, we weren't just... Uh, growing a commodity that we would try and get the best price for and ship off the farm and go from there. It was very personal and a a great connection, I think, for all of us. An experience of awe, of wonder, of beauty. Yes. And that's our birthright. 
it is. That's the way authors should be, I think. At least I, that's what I try and find to feed my, my husband and I right now. Our children are grown, but it's always been important to me, you know, what's in my food or what did my food eat, as they're saying now, you know. Did my yeah. cattle, you know, if I'm eating beef, did it uh, have its natural food of grass, pasture-fed, rather than being fed, uh, you know, commodities that are not its natural food? And it, likewise, you know, is the fertility in my soil coming from, you know, decomposing organic matter that helps improve the soil and feeds all the bacteria and microbes in the soil and and makes uh, those nutrients available to the plant and so forth? So, well, and we had uh, David Montgomery and Anne Blaclay on, and they have the book out, What Your Food Ate. And um, we know of 50,000 phytochemicals, but our, in our industrial system doesn't, we, we don't even know how vital they are to our, our health and well-being right now. I mean, vitalcarotene and some of these things emerge, but it's so important to eat food from healthy soil. And that's not something you can even see at the cash register, but you can kind of taste it, can't you? Well, some people say they can. I, a lot of homegrown food tastes good to me, no matter what. <laughs> that first asparagus stick or that first tomato or that strawberry. I sometimes, but I, you know, the discriminating tastes say that they can taste the difference. Yeah, certainly tastes fresher. Yes. And so, um, but now tell us some of the struggles that you had also starting it because it, it wasn't an easy thing to to start. How did you find this land, and how did you start preparing the soil and? Um, doing this in a way that could actually still um, help pay your bills, and as a young mother. Well, um, my husband and I live on a small acreage, but most of it's wooded, and so it's not an appropriate place to grow anything other than a backyard garden. So when we decided I wanted to do this farming business, we looked further afield. And finding land is one of the biggest obstacles for beginning farmers if they were not, you know, inheriting land and born on the farm have access to that land that's one of the biggest barriers and it's not just finding small farms to buy in Iowa where farms can be and probably Minnesota too I'm not as familiar um, farms can be you know hundreds and thousands of acres so finding a small size you don't need that many acres for vegetables and fruits and then not only finding it but being able to afford it price land prices have gone so high that even to buy a small farm Today is prohibitive for some beginning farmers. So that was one of the first obstacles. My husband and I were middle-aged, and we had some, you know, resource available to us. He was he had a good job, and so we had resources and be able to buy the land. And then there's always the the neighbors around you, and sometimes they're spraying their their crops or their lawns or whatever. There happened to be housing development come up next to the land. We bought 20 acres off of a 99-acre plot that we finally found. And, of course, housing moved in. So we found and we found less cooperation from lawn companies spraying chemicals than, than from the local farm on the other side. He was more considerate than the lawn company. But so we're, we're going to take a break, and we're, we're going to come right back. We're talking with the author of Finding Turtle Farm, My 20-Acre Adventure in Community-Supported Agriculture, Angela Tedesco. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and uh, joining us now is the author of Finding Turtle Farm, My 20-Acre Adventure in Community-Supported Agriculture, Angela Tedesco. And um, in 1995, she started 20-Acre um, CSA Farm, and uh, one of the chapters is The Healing Path of Nature. Um, and you start by quoting Buckminster Fuller, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And so I think most of our listeners know what a CSA is, but just again, briefly give us that um, idea of uh, how many how many farm how many families were you working with? Uh, and I peak I was serving 180 families or I was putting out 180 boxes a week. some, some families shared boxes. so yes, close to 200 families a week. and they signed up for the season and we'll get this box of vegetables once a week for about 20 week season. And the whole idea of being prepaid, how important is that to get that, to prepay um, for the food, for the farmers? Well, it's wonderful for the farmer because you're paying things from, you know, buying seed in January, paying employees, you know, usually starting in the spring. And so you have all these expenses. So to have that available to not have to get a loan for those expenses is wonderful. Plus, it's a commitment that they're making to you and you're in turn having to serve that commitment back to them by showing up and providing the food, which can be stressful, but it's important. So um, earlier in the show, we were talking with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy about um, climate change and agriculture. And in our current agriculture system, there is a lot of negative um, externalities. So negative externalities. So um, uh, when you put corn on the on the, on, the, on the land and you put a lot of chemicals in it, then you get nitrates in your water and you get um, a global uh, a greenhouse gas of um, nitrous oxide. When you approach the land from a it's a sacred, you actually get positive externalities. You um, help with the butterflies, you help with the insects, you create community. So it's a whole, it's a... Um, it's a regenerative system. Yeah, it's regenerative. It's a whole ecosystem that you're trying to create a, a balanced ecosystem on the farm that you know includes the insects and the <coughs> excuse me the the bacterial life in the soil as well as the crops that you're growing and you know even things like coyotes that would come and eat the rabbits or snakes that eat the mice are all part of the system. It's all one big. Piece. It's also, you know, relates back to that John Muir quote that when you tug on a piece of nature, it's connected to everything else. So it is all connected. So you want to treat every piece of it with respect and dignity. Yeah, and so, um, and you did, um, you did, you're no longer a CSA farmer. So talk about um, when you left um, the farming, and and I know you had a you had a wonderful idea, um, but you weren't able to um, find someone to. to continue, um, so so the land transfer epilogue. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I decided to retire, and we did not live on the farm, and we wanted it to stay a farm because we'd come to love it. I didn't want to just sell it outright and become a development. So we looked around for ways to keep it a farm, and the first idea we looked at was co-housing, which didn't work out. It's such a new idea. Uh, yeah, well, it's kind of like CSAs were a new idea at one time. Uh, that it didn't quite go over. I wasn't a good enough salesperson for that, apparently. So I looked around at possibly donating the land, and we found an organization we thought would help keep it a farm, which was Practical Farmers of Iowa. 
and uh, we sold a top third of the farm, which was less productive and had the best view for uh, a developer, which enabled us to preserve the other two-thirds of the farm and donate to farmers to use for their, um, to encourage their beginning farmers. Great. So it's being rented now to a young man who worked for me. That's so wonderful. I mean, but I love the idea of like um, eco housing or working in communities next to land. So, um, but mm-hmm. that's beautiful that you donated it. Now we only have about two minutes left, and this is in August. People can go to the uh, farmers markets at this time and get extra produce and find ways of keeping it for the fall and and the winter time. So, can you give us any tips on what to do with the bounty of the fowl fall fall bounty? Uh, whatever you like to eat, buy extra of and preserve it as best you can. If you have freezer space, so right now I'm roasting tomatoes in my my oven, and I will freeze those in pint jars and bring those out in the winter to make tomato sauce or whatever I need. And uh, sometimes I have okra, and you think, how can you preserve okra? Well, I make a soup out of tomatoes, onions, and okra and freeze that, and that's wonderful to bring out too. It can be a little bit tricky if you don't have a freezer to do that sort. You might have to look at canning or something. But look at what you want to eat. You know, find your favorite crops and find ways to preserve them, whether it's freezing or canning. And fermenting. Fermenting is a great thing. Or dehydrating. I'm dehydrating my herbs and sometimes tomatoes and other crops, too. So that's another option if you don't have a freezer. And um, the book also includes a lot of recipes. Um, so, um, yes. and like the ratatouille is a nice basic one. So, what's your idea of uh, a quick, easy way to make ratatouille? <laughs> I don't know if there's a quick, easy way to make ratatouille. I basically chop up lots of vegetables: the peppers, the eggplant, the tomatoes, and onions, and garlic, and mix them all together and throw them in the oven. So it is kind of nice. Once you get them chopped up, you throw it in the oven and. Bake it for, I believe it's 45 minutes to an hour. No, it's an hour, hour and a half. And so once you get in the oven, it's pretty easy, and it reheats wonderfully. So that's a a good one for that. Great. Well, Angela Tedesco, um, the book Finding Turtle Farm, My 20-Acre Adventure in Community-Supported Agriculture. Is there a, what, What's the best way for people to find this? Uh, I know we have we have a local food um, bookstore partner, but... And it's also- you can ask for it at the local bookstore. It's available for the University of Minnesota Press. It's also on Amazon if you want to go that route. Well, I've got my thoughts on that. But, sorry. but yeah, it's from the University <laughs> of Minnesota and um, Finding Turtle Farm. So thank you so much, Angela, for being with us. And uh, thank you for listening. And also thanks to Ben from uh, IETP for joining us early in the show. And have a wonderful uh, weekend.